Thank you guys for those of you who made me aware that you were praying and taking interest in my absence last week. I had the opportunity to be in Orlando part of the week last week and part of the weekend for uh, a meeting with Danny Jones and a few other pastors. Uh, Sovereign Grace is in the midst of trying to address growth pains and adding more churches and trying to give more effective oversight and care for the regions of churches that are throughout the United States and growing internationally as well. And uh, Danny's responsibilities are growing and expanding. Uh, He not only gives care and oversight to sort of the southeastern area of the United States, which is actually expanding as well, and uh, but is also has his hands in uh, serving pastors in Cuba, developing opportunities in the Caribbean. So he has has felt and, and been led by others in the leadership team to sort of redevelop his own leadership in the southeast part of the United States and ask for a few pastors to help him in that regard. And so that meeting that we had this past weekend was to help kind of get some ideas moving towards regional planning and the future of our support and role and other things that are happening throughout the southeastern part of the United States as a church and how we can be a part of that. But thank you guys for praying for me and asking about that. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 3. You want to be turning there. I had actually uh, asked Matt to skip these verses and to go into John chapter 4 last week. We're going to come back here and look at these passages today. And there's an issue that is highlighted here that it's, it's one of those experiences in our Christian walk, sort of like a bloodstream issue. It's just kind of flowing in our blood or it's not flowing in our blood. And it's greatly affecting so many areas in our lives. And, you know, the, I put in your outline there a little illustration in the box. It's diagnosing hidden ailments. <clears throat> this issue today would sort of be like iron deficiency anemia, which is characterized by pallor, fatigue, and weakness. Because it tends to develop slowly, adaptation occurs, and the disease often goes unrecognized for some time. <clears throat> Just looking at this, I, you know, there's a way in which your blood processes uh, nutrients and, and provides energy to your life. And it's much more common if you're a woman here, you probably are much more in touch with the realities of uh, iron deficiency in your life. Now, the reality is I think many people don't realize that they are iron deficient. We we bumped into this a few times throughout Gina's pregnancies. And even though we kind of become aware of it, we can still be stupid about it when it happens. That she will just begin to experience great fatigue, great weakness. And you start looking around at what, what can you fix to kind of make that thing get right. Like, well, you know, just need to get more sleep or I mean, we're doing too much or need to try this and stop that and eat this. And well, eventually you should go to the doctor and some blood work will be done. And it's, you know, the doctors are trying to figure out why you're still alive. You know, you are so iron deficient. It's a wonder that you you actually can get up and walk And iron deficiency, much more common in women than it is in men. But it can be an issue that's there that we're not aware 
that it's causing a whole bunch of the other problems that we're having in our lives. The symptoms that are common for being iron deficient. Fatigue, weakness, palpitations, fainting, a weak immune system. So this one area of physiology can branch off into many areas and could be the reason why we're having some problems in some other areas. Well, the subject we're going to look at today, which I've called ambitiously decreasing from John the Baptist's life, would be symptoms of being not iron deficient, but being humility deficient. What kind of things become common experiences in our lives when we are humility deficient as Christians? Well, I'll put some bullets there for you to think about. Well, perhaps it could show up as a history of relational conflict particularly in your own family, husbands and wives, especially. Just difficulty in getting along. Just, you know, butting heads and being at odds and taking up offenses and always having to apologize and make right and apologize and make right. You know, what, what is that? Well, I believe it's probably a symptom of a lack of humility. Prone to criticism and negativity. You know, you lift your eyes up and it doesn't take many hours in the day for you to just become negative. Just down on this. Call your husband. Yeah, the neighbor, he's doing it again. You know, just, just you, you open your eyes and you look at what issues are out there that I can just be critical of. Or that person didn't do this. Or the words out of your mouth are much more frequently correction than they are encouragement. Lack of contentment. Just not being satisfied with what you have and where you are in life. It's a humility issue. Very much so. Problems with irritability and anger. You know, we get irritated by things that, that we think we don't deserve. We don't deserve that. We get angry over it because it's an injustice being done. That thing's coming into my life. Your issue is touching my life in a certain way. I don't deserve for that to be this way. That's a humility issue. And I want everybody to write these last two down. I didn't put them in your little box there. But the fear of man and the fear of failure. And this, this, that, that category and these experiences are particularly what fuel me in this message. I feel a sense of great sadness over how many Christians are living their Christian life with chains around their lives because of this. Fear of failure and fear of man. Listen, you're going to have to be just honest. Nobody has to stand up. You don't have to raise your hand for anything here. But you do need to be brutally honest in your own heart. Because there are too many, perhaps seated today in this room, who will go home and go back into the normal life. This is an abnormal setting. You'll go back into the normal settings and you traffic constantly in thoughts about what others think of you, how they interact with you, whether you want to be around that person or in this setting or with the family or you know, because of the way that makes you feel and, and whether you want to step out and try something, whether you want to step out into the church and do something. Been saved for years and years and years, but don't serve in any capacity. And not just because my life is busy. You know, we create you know, some kind of reason for what we're doing. But if you could dig through the reasons that we give and get to the bottom of it, we're just scared to death. We're too afraid to try that. Step out and serve in that. Can we could fail? Oh, that'd be terrible. You might fail. 
People would see me as a failure then. <gasps> I mean, we're living controlled by this noise. It's terrible. You know what that is? It's a symptom of humility deficiency. I'm not, I'm not sufficiently humble. So therefore, failure, me being seen as a failure, unacceptable. I will not put myself in a position to be seen as a failure. Why not? Well, it could be because I love my own greatness too much. And I don't want to do anything to damage my greatness. I don't want to be decreasing in greatness before anybody's eyes, primarily before my own. You know, I can get away from you, but I've got to go home with me. And I want to be convinced that I'm great. I don't need to be convinced that I'm great in every category, by the way. I just need certain categories to be great in. I need to feel like I'm great. I just need enough people to tell me I'm great in these categories. And that kind of gives me license to stink in some other ones. I'm okay with failing terribly. And so, as long as somewhere along the line I can stick my chest out and say, Oh yeah, I may not do that real good, but man, I'm really good at this. And what's interesting is we look at John the Baptist today. You're going to find a man who gives us a lesson in humility when it gets into the very real recesses of his life. And his response is outstanding. So we're going to stand in the shadow of John the Baptist and learn how does a great man respond to greatness. Let's start reading in John chapter 3, verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and the Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, not even a hesitation. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Father, let these words travel deeply into our hearts. Lord, I pray that... What would be happening in the Spirit today as we're together and your word that is living and active and powerful and it accomplishes everything that you send it forth to accomplish. Lord, that if we could hear in the Spirit, Lord, we would hear throughout this message the sound of chains falling to the ground and freedom coming into our lives and perspective coming into our hearts and us having a newfound capacity to lift our eyes from ourselves and to look upon your greatness and to see it with new eyes, unlimited by ourselves. Lord, do that. Only you can do that, Lord, today in our midst as we're here. In Jesus' name, amen. What's interesting is I look at John the Baptist. 
You know, remember who this man is. It helps for us to have a little bit of a character reference on who this guy is. Remember, this is the man whom Jesus says about him. Remember, remember who Jesus is, evaluating somebody else's character. Jesus would be the only human being ever that could 100% accurately speak about another person. I mean, you understand, you traffic in your own biases every time you measure someone else. It is so polluted. Whoever you applaud, you need to be very careful that you're not applauding them because they somehow, in their greatness, make you greater. Like, look at my children. Aren't they great? Look. Oh, they're so great. You know, what is that? Aren't my children great? You know, and I'm just floating because it somehow reflects on me. Or somehow somebody else that I'm really down on and I'm really critical of because somehow that, that makes me better. Be aware that a lot of our criticism about others is really an attempt for us to step on them and, and gain ground. It's like if I step on you, I get to be seen. Oops, I get to be seen as unsafe, as, as greater in some category. So here's Jesus comes to John the Baptist. He's the only human being who ever walked the face of the earth who's not tainted by his own biases. He sees life accurately. And he says of this man, of men born to woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. So this guy that we're looking at today, he is the greatest man who's ever been on planet Earth besides Jesus Christ. And he is responding to greatness. And his response is, I must decrease. I must become less. It's interesting what his response is to greatness versus what man and what God's created creation, what their response to greatness is. Do you remember the day that Satan discovered greatness? What did he do? He wanted to kick God off the throne. He wanted, he wanted a power move. He wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to gather all of creation around him. Because he found that there was something unique about him. You have to admit, if you read the descriptions in the Old Testament about Satan, he was sort of a crown jewel of creation. I mean, there was uniqueness about him that of all the things that God had made, this being was unique. And when he discovered greatness, his appetite was to increase. I must increase. And he became this cancer in heaven that God had to kick out. Adolf Hitler. Do you remember what happened when he discovered greatness? Remember he discovered what he thought was the superior race, the Aryan race, superior to others, greater than others on planet Earth. So what did he go about doing? He sought to exterminate and to eliminate those who were inferior. They must decrease. I must increase. And this is so important because you and I, we get up every morning and turn on the morning news show and breathe the air of this stuff. We breathe and live in a society that is trying to find greatness in here. You know, the word self is, is the hyphenated prefix for every word in the universe today. Have you noticed? Self-esteem, self-love, self-image, self-expression. Uh, just everywhere self is somewhere because we have found greatness in ourselves. And when you find and locate greatness in yourself, it awakens in you an ambition for yourself. I must increase. Now, the greatest man on earth 
when he discovered greatness, the key difference here is he discovered it outside of himself. He discovered true greatness. And when one discovers true greatness, you want greatness to increase. And you want that which is not great to decrease. This is the natural flow of humility in the created order that God has made. And the the thing that makes our life together a challenge, our life as Christians, our worship a challenge, is uh, whatever is great to us is what we will become ambitious about. Ambition can be a great thing, but let's face it. Ambition is the epicenter of all of our relational problems. See, if you're just this dud, you know, you got nothing going on in life, you don't care about anything, you know, you're not aggressive about anything, you don't get riled up about nothing, you're just this mushroom growing in a field, you know, you're kind of easy to deal with. It's the person who has an ambition, who wants something, that person's going to be a problem. But it's going to be a problem. You marry that person. By the way, you are that person as well. There's going to be a problem in your relationship. Because whatever it is that we label great, it awakens ambitions in us. The second that thing becomes great. Now, now notice in here, there's a variety of great things in, this, in our opinions in this room. I mean, crocheting is probably great for somebody in here. Right? And, and you're ambitious about that. I mean, if those little needles weren't blunt on the end, you probably would have killed people with them by now. They've come in the room, you're doing that little thing, you know, and they're disturbing you, right? You're ambitious about that thing. You could take their life if that was a real point on the end of that thing. Because you're ambitious about that. For somebody else, ambition lies in a different category. But whatever you and I label as great, we become ambitious about it. And herein comes the opportunity for sin and for destruction and, and when greatness is found in something that we're about and who we are, the appetite for increase becomes, I must protect my ability to increase. I must increase. But John the Baptist responds exactly the opposite. And there's such liberty in him. You know, I, I find most of us amongst the, the gathering of John's disciples. We're running to John in a panic. We're all concerned. John. You are dis- you're diminishing, pal. We're all been out of shape. He's not bothered. He has something else in him than what most of us tend to traffic in. Let's, let's just take this little conversation apart a piece at a time and learn. Just, this is just an everyday lesson. And this is the issue about humility. It's an everyday sort of a thing. You have opportunities every day, every moment for humility to grow or for pride and self-increase to become the agenda. Verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, you got to get the frame of mind here. Is it really true all are going to him? We just learned in this passage John is still baptizing in one place, and Jesus and his disciples are baptizing in another. So it's really not true that all are going to him. But you see how you get? See how you can get in a panic? Our greatness could be diminishing. Ah, all are going to him. And this is how we think. And sirens should go off. Are you a person who exaggerates? You don't have to raise your hands, but do you exaggerate? 
Always remember. (laughs) The scarecrow said never. Always remember. Always remember. When you exaggerate, you have an agenda. If you exaggerate just a little bit, you have a reason for doing that. And it's about greatness. So pay careful attention if you start sounding like these guys, these panicky little followers of John the Baptist. Because something's missing in them that's very present in John. Now remember for a moment, where is John at this point in his career? Remember, John starts out, he's this weirdo who lives on the edge of town. He's dressed weird, he's eating bugs and honey. He's to himself. You know, I don't know, you walked, I don't know, what did this look like? You walked into the, the gate of the city up the road and, and way over on the horizon is this man pacing back and forth by himself. He's dressed goofy and all oh, that's John. He's probably like an upset stomach from the bugs he's been eating. You know, you're just looking at this weird guy on the edge of the city. And then one day when we find John the Baptist in the New Testament now when he's grown up, all of a sudden he's a man of significance. Crowds are coming out to him. They're they're calling him these great things. He's Elijah come back to life. People are seeking him out. They want his input. This guy's a man of renown when Jesus comes on the scene and sort of pulls the plug on the whole thing. Can you imagine? I mean, put yourself in that position. Your career has been a dud, and then it skyrockets and takes off. There's notoriety, there's fame, everything is going your way. It's a challenge to respond the way this guy responds in this moment. Here comes the great word. Look! Look! This, is, this, is, this one word would be enough for us just to look at today. Look! The incredible temptation... To compare. Now, whether we have little disciples running around us or whether just the voices in our head tell us, look, look, how do you, how do you compare? Look over there. You know, and notice, you don't compare yourself with everyone. You have a category of who you are and you compare yourself with those who are in your category. Look. What a temptation that comes every moment of every day in our lives. Look at that person's appearance. They're rounder than me or less round than me. Her haircut looks really good. And you're thinking about your own haircut, right? There's comparison taking place. Somebody's lost weight. And you're comparing whether you've lost as much weight or whether you need to lose weight. And so you can get in a room... And quickly you get this comparison thing going on. Uh, what car do you drive versus what car somebody else drives? You know, we just, we have this opportunity to compare. If you, if you go out and buy a car, it's funny, my, we, we, we've gone through more cars this year than I think a car lot. Um, but we had just recently bought a car and one of my daughters noticed, boy, I've noticed this car everywhere now, Dad. <laughs> you ever notice that when you buy a car, all of a sudden they exist all over the place? I just told her, honey, since we bought this car, everybody wants one. We're just buying them left and right. Uh, but you don't even notice. So you don't even notice those things until it's in your category. You have one. Right? Uh, we, had, we had shopped for cars a while ago, and I came across this great deal on a car. And, and it was a little bit more of a high-end car than I'm used to owning. You know, it's kind of with the blue headlights. You know what I'm talking about? 
If you see blue headlights coming, you know that guy, he paid a price for that car. I mean, the stinking headlights cost an unbelievable amount of money. So I find this great deal in this car, so I buy this car. We own it for three weeks. It gets totaled. We have to go buy another car. But during that three-week period, I'm a part of the Blue Light Club, and I don't mean Kmart. I'm a part of the Blue Light Club. I'm driving down the highway, and when I see blue lights, I know. You probably, you probably paid ten times as much for your car as I did, but you don't know that, you know? You know, now I'm just back in those typical headlight cars. But, you know, in me, it's just this comparison thing that comes up in our hearts. You'd be prone to compare your children with somebody else's children. You know, how are they excelling? What are they doing? What school are they in? What kind of grades are they making? Uh, you know, this is in us. Spiritually, we're prone to compare. You know, how somebody else is doing spiritually? How are they getting along? How are they growing? How are they dealing with issues? What do they confess? Was it bigger than mine? Was their statement better? Did theirs make more sense? Was it more theologically rich when they shared in covenant group and I put comparing what I sound like versus what they sound like? And every day presents an opportunity for someone or a voice inside your head to say, look, look. How do you compare to that? Listen to Andrew Murray. His thoughts. He says, humility towards men will be the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. That humility has taken up its abode in us and become our very nature. And that we actually, like Christ, have made ourselves of no reputation. I can't tell you how wonderfully freeing that is. To not be busy at work on our reputation. On our impression we're trying to make on others. When in the presence of God, lowliness of heart has become not a posture we pray to Him... But the very spirit of our life, the aroma of how we interact with life, it's lowly, it's meek. It will manifest itself in all our bearing towards our brethren. The lesson is one of deep import. The only humility that is really ours is not that which we try to show before God in prayer, but that which we carry with us and carry out in our ordinary conduct. It is in our most unguarded moments that we really show and see what we are. To know the humble man and to know how the humble man behaves, you must follow him in the common course of daily life. What I've learned in the years that I have had to wrestle through issues of pride and humility, I've learned in myself and I've learned in watching others and walking with others, that there's a, there's a great difference between learning to appear and sound humble and being humble. Uh, I, I didn't quite understand that real fully until we got around folks in Sovereign Grace. That humility, rightly so, is a constant discussion. It's a very important characteristic of the Christian life and held out as very important. So what ends up happening, though, is, is we can learn to value what humility looks like and sounds like. So therefore, in my own pride, I can learn to want to look and sound humble because humility is being applauded around these people. Listen, you understand, I've been in church settings where humility is never even discussed. It's not a topic. It's as though the Bible is silent on the issue. And, you know, if you read Andrew Murray's book, I love the way Andrew Murray writes this book. It was one of the most, the most influential books in my life uh, as a young man. 
But the way he writes the book is, is there anything else but humility to talk about? That's the way the book sounds. But you come to many churches and it's like that's never discussed. Now, if you get in a setting where it's applauded and discussed, you can want to increase in humility. So that that which is being applauded, you've just scooted into the category of applause. See, in this group, humility is applauded. Oh, I'm going to look and sound as humble as possible. So I defer and I make statements and I learn the buzzwords of humility, how to posture my body. It doesn't mean I'm humble. It could mean I'm very proud and very shrewd. And I've learned how to traffic my pride into a category even in humility. So in this everyday life, in the discourse of what do I sound like in, in the unguarded moments? Not when I'm here to put on a presentation. I'm in covenant group. I'm going to say this, but I'm going to, I'm going to cloak it in. You know, I'm going to speak in the next few moments, but it's really not even me speaking. It's really God speaking. And, uh, you know, it's like, no, when you're done, we're going to know it was you speaking. <laughs> you, know, you know, up here playing the keyboard. You know, it's really not me. It's, it's Jesus playing. No, he would play much better. <laughs> we are sure it was you. Uh, you know, but, they, you know, we kind of dress up our presentation to make it sound humble. That doesn't mean we're humble. Right? Here's an unguarded moment for John. Everyday life is happening, and here comes his guys freaking out. Because, John, what are you going to do? This guy's taking all your notoriety. All your fame's going to him. You're going to be a nobody soon, John. And they're all in a panic over this. He's baptizing, for goodness sake. Now, can you think of a worse thing for John the Baptist to have to deal with? <laughs> Dude, this is in your wheelhouse. You are John the Baptist. He's not Jesus the Baptist. You're John the Baptist. And more people are going to him than going to you. This is, this is who he is. Right? When we read the Bible, he's John the Baptist. I'm not even Keith the pastor. He's John the Baptist, for goodness sake. This, if you, this is his identity. This is what he is known for, right? So a couple of questions for us. What are you known for? If you were Joe the whatever, what would it be? What are you, what are you known for, right? And you know, you grow up, you might be known for your athletics. At some point, perhaps you're known for being wealthy. You know, as a wealthy person, or you're... You're known for being funny. You're the guy who just walks into the room, walks into the meeting. Everybody, you're, you're the funny guy. You got, you got a joke. Everybody looks to you. They laugh even when you didn't mean for it to be funny. Right? You've just trained people that everything you say is funny. And, and that's who you are. You're the funny guy. Uh, you're the leader. People look to you. you know, decisions are being made. You're a person of influence. They, they put you in a certain position, and you've come to identify yourself that way. Maybe your talent is what you're known for. Your beauty from a very early age, uh, you were an attractive person. People said that about you enough times to convince you that it was true as well. And, and now that's, that's who you are. Beauty is a huge part of what affects you and where you go and what you do. Popularity. Uh, you could be known for your parenting. Um, might be known for your spirituality. Just what great insights you have to share and the effect that you have and the, the consistency of your walk. Any of these things can be things that you're known for. Next question is, how do you do in comparing yourself to others? How do you do? Now, I don't mean, oh, I compare quite well. Thank you for asking. I don't mean that. I mean, do you compare? Do you recognize the tendency for you to look? Look up. 
And look up, again, you're only going to look in the categories that you're known for. You know you stink in some areas, right? I mean, I'm just crocheting. How many of you guys just cannot crochet at all? The rest of y'all can? What kind of a church is this? That's not great, okay? This is not what we want to be known for as a church, a church that crochets. My apologies to all you who crochet, but you know, there's no appetite for increasing in crocheting. I just I want to be able to blazing speed, you know, be able to crochet like a maniac, man. That's not in me. I don't care. If I sat down and looked like a doofus with a crochet thing in mind and didn't know what I was doing, it wouldn't bother me at all. But there are some categories in me that I look like a failure in that would bother me. Right? If you want to find out how pride and humility are doing, you've got to get into the right categories of your own life. Don't get into the ones that don't matter to you. Get into the ones that matter to you a lot. Right? For John the Baptist, somebody else baptizing more people than him, that's an issue that matters for this poor guy. How do you do... When this area in your life decreases in your life. And you're known for this. And it's decreasing. It's becoming less. You're becoming less significant in this category of your life. How do you do? Right, you'll notice this when, when, a, when a new rival shows up in that category. Whose greatness is greater than yours. They're funnier than you are. You notice you tell jokes, but they laugh more at his, more athletic than you are, more attractive than you are, greater leadership and influential ability in them than in you. All of a sudden, you're decreasing, aren't you? Your category is becoming less in this moment. How do you do with that? You okay with that? Does it kind of eat you up on the inside? See, it would be an indicator of whether... I have mislocated greatness, taken it away from God being great, and somehow it's now about me being great and my appetite to increase and always be increasing in that category that for me is a great category and a significant category in my life. Listen, there's so many variables here that are so wonderfully freeing. I mean, you realize that greatness for many folks, and John the Baptist highlights this, greatness is a seasonal thing for many things in our lives. You may be great for a season. You weren't great at that before, and your greatness will wane, and it may not be the thing that you're going to be most known about. But he recognizes, and John is so great about this, he recognizes there was a season in my life. I'm not the Christ. I was still on a mission before he came. I'm done. And he's okay with that. You're all right with being done? You're, you're all right with not being a headline act? With what you're known for being, what crowds coming to you, you're all right with that. Yeah, because he's located greatness in the right place. And when he's done that, he wants greatness to increase where it is truly great. And he recognizes true greatness is not in me. I must decrease. He must increase. But this statement, all are going to him. All are going to him. Right. You do realize in your life that at some point you're going to get replaced. Whatever category matters, you're going to be replaced by someone else. How many of you guys in this gathering today know who Dan Roncesvalles is? Let me just see your hand real quick. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine people in this room know who Dan Roncesvalles is. Dan Roncesvalles was the pastor who built 
what wasn't called Lakeview Christian Center at that time, but he built the building that we've been using for many, many years. And you didn't even know his name. He had a season of, of great significance that affected us, but you didn't even know who he is. Now, 20 years from now, if it even takes that long, somebody will stand up here and go, okay, how many guys know who Keith Collins is? One, two, three, four. Okay. See, there's a season where our activity is going to come and go in life. This is true all across the board. How many of you younger guys know who John Meekham is? Right? John Meekham. Not a lot. John Schwegman? Okay, a little better. A little better. But you do realize, I mean, my kids, don't know, they don't know who John Schwegman is. John Schwegman, who's that? John Schwegman! I mean, supermarket king! Guy who built the giant supermarkets. Uh, but there can come a day where he's a nobody. Nobody remembers him. The seasons of our lives, they just come and go. We get replaced by other things. And how do we feel about that? See, well, how we feel about it tells us about where we've located greatness and whether we're eager to increase in the wrong things. Or whether our appetite is, is like John the Baptist, ambitiously decreasing. Ambitious. I am ambitious to decrease so that true greatness might increase in my stead. Look in verse 27. Here's John's answer. Here's a deep philosophy of humility that I think undergirds why he can respond this way, right? Immediately the question is, Rabbi, aren't you concerned? Your greatness is diminishing. His answer immediately. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That this is the this is the pilings upon which humility sits, a foundational understanding of the sovereign activity of God in all of creation. John's response is anything that I ever had was not because of me. It was because of God. And if God should choose to change that, that'd be just fine. That would be great, too. It would be great if he desires to give it to me in a certain fashion for a certain season. If he chooses to do something different, that would be great, too, because greatness is about him. And if he chooses to do something great that does or does not involve me, it is still great. And I don't stand and freak out over, yeah, but it's not great for me. Oh, but I'm not trying to have the greatness be about me. My appetite is for the greatness to be about him. If it's great for me to come and go then that's truly great. And I will applaud it and celebrate it when it happens. And that's, that's what's trafficking in this man. Putting your outline, all greatness finds its origins and developmental cause in God. Our existence. Our talents. Right? Some people here are talented in different categories. Those talents originate in God. They're developmental dynamics of how good they've become. That's in God, too. Our intellect and skills, our wealth, our salvation, all of our spirituality, every ounce of sanctification, all that originates and finds its cause in God. It does not find it in us. It's found in God. J.C. Ryle said, this sentence is the statement of a general truth in religion. Success, promotion, and growth of influence are gifts which God keeps entirely in his own hands. 
T.A. Carson said, God's sovereignty stands hidden behind all human claims. For a human being does not have anything but what he has received. You and I did not create whatever it is that we are known for. We did not create that ourselves. It has been apportioned by a sovereign God who chose for this characteristic and ability to to reside here and this one to reside here. This one to reside at this level and right next door to it for it to reside at this level, not as high as this one. A sovereign God has done these things. And if we lose sight of that, we thrust ourselves into our own achievements, our own activity, a comparison. Because if I think it originates with you and I think it originates with me, now it's a matter of, well, who's doing a better job of what they got? You or me, how much money you got? How many car you driving? How big is your house? How, how far up the ladder have you climbed? How spiritual are you? How many verses can you quote? Well, because it's all about me. And if I can be superior, then it reflects better on me. I look better. I'm greater. Look at some of these scripture passages real quickly. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. It says, beware. It's a great warning. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Let me just hang on to that. If you're experiencing fear or pride in the areas of your accomplishments, in the areas of your finances, if you're experiencing fear or pride, it's because you're on the wrong end of this warning. Fearful about your, how you're going to pay the bills? What's going to happen next in your finances? Boastful in the fact that you can afford and you have achieved? Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers. Psalm 75 Even to the unbeliever says, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment. Putting down one and lifting up another. Samuel says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. David, when he was taking up this great offering to build the, the tabernacle, uh, the temple, in First Chronicle 29, he says, And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness. This is a battle for greatness, isn't it? Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Now, this is King David who won many battles who was a triumphant general, this guy would, you know, he was better than the Hornets. You know, he was 13-0 and on the road. I mean, this guy could put you down. And when he came back to town with, you know, all the, the, uh, the booty, if you will, the treasures from foreign lands from his victories and showed up, parties were thrown. And, oh, David, Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. You remember, this guy could have an ego the size of Mount Everest. And look at what he says. No, God, all the glory, the victory, the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. 
in your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. Where does this stuff come from? Listen, do you know what these verses, this revelation does to comparison? See, quite often when that tendency in us goes, look, and we want to compare with somebody else, we end up having the battle issues of jealousy because that person's doing better than, than we are in some way. Or they're getting more notoriety. Or there's great success that's surrounding them, and we want to compare to that. But if I understand this principle, that God is the one who gives success, God is the one who raises up, God is the one who rewards, God is the one who promotes, God is the one who brings notoriety, and I turn around and I find you are more notorious than I am, if I understand God did that and I'm after God's greatness, wow, so wonderful what's going on in your life. So I don't have to compete with it, because I recognize it's from God. When I start competing with it, not only do I think it's from you, but I also think my greatness is from me as well. See, I've lost sight of this principle. If I know God has done that in you, God has made you more famous than he's made me. God has made you more successful in this than he's made me. God has done this, and since I'm after God increasing and God being seen as glorious, I'm okay with that. I'm thrilled with it. I have cause to rejoice. See, this principle also sets us free from sort of an unhealthy self-criticism. And we look at somebody else's successes, and then we look at ours, and we become discontent, angry, that we're not where they are, that we didn't achieve that. We don't compare well. We don't sound that way. We don't communicate that way. And we start criticizing ourselves and feeling a certain way about ourselves based on what God is doing in somebody else. Listen, God could choose to do in somebody else what he chooses to do differently in you. That's God's call. If somebody else is wealthier than me and they've got more money than me and I'm just a big failure and uh, Maybe God has just chosen to do something different with you than he's chosen to do with, with someone else. See, it's when you want to take all the credit that you also get to take all the blame as well. Which isn't biblical for a God who is sovereign. It's a very humbling element. The next verse here in First Chronicles 29, verse 13 says, And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? This is a big offering that's being taken for this temple. For all things come from you. And of your own have we given. God, we just simply dipped into your stuff and turned around and gave it to you. How impressive is that? Verse 16. Oh, Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. Listen, do, do you feel that way when money is discussed in church? Oh, I'm going to talk about tithing again. Oh, I'm going to take up an offering. Listen, I just prepare you. You want to skip services in March because you don't know which Sunday it will be. But in, in March, we will regroup concerning the building. We will, we will look where we are financially with the building process. We will rethink what pledges need to look like, what offerings yet to have been given. And it would be easy for us to, to kind of get, oh, man, we did this last year. Go again, dipping into my wallet. 
That doesn't sound like David sounded here. It doesn't sound biblical. If I understand that everything in my wallet is in God's ownership. I really don't own anything. And everything that I give, I simply give out of his bucket back to him. It's all his. See, pride wants to come and say, no, 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 it's mine. I work hard. You know what? I've got this and I do that and I earn this and this is mine. And the greatness of God is out of the picture. At this point, greatness is located in me. My greatness has produced my wealth. And how dare you try to put your hands on it? I had a conversation with somebody the other day who was telling me about the church that they attend and just kind of how the church is made up and um, how the pastor handles certain topics. And they brought up the issue of money and how it's handled. And it's just the picture that was painted was one of just walking around the edges of the topic once a year. And I tried to be nice and I listened to the thoughts that were offered. And I thought, that dude's going to have some answering to do. When he stands before God. Listen, I, I, I don't feel any inhibition to talk about your money. Because you understand, my understanding biblically is, it isn't yours anyway. And if you are misusing God's money, you are going to give an account for that. And me having told you rescues me from having to give an account for why didn't you tell them? That every dime in their wallet wasn't theirs. And so when God requires it from you in a certain way, he's not dipping into what you originated. He's simply taking back what he gave you in the first place. See, this, this is a humility is a theological umbrella under which we exist. Anywhere where I stiffen my back and I say, I have done, I have accomplished, I am out from underneath the very the very bloodstream element of Christianity. So you cannot walk with God this way. Humility informs us in so many categories. You can you go look at that. I didn't, I'm not going to go chase down that verse in, in 1 Corinthians. What's very interesting, if you look at the Corinthians, the same exact thought is said to them, where Paul explains to them, you know, guys, there's divisions among you. You fight with each other. I'm a Paul. I'm a Apollos. Now, what is, what is that all about? What, it's a comparison thing. Look. Well, yeah, well, I'm loyal to this teaching here. I don't know about you. And there's this, this fight taking place. And Paul has to deal with the issue of pride in their midst. And he says, I'm just curious, but what do you have that you did not receive? And if it was given to you, why do you boast as though it wasn't? And there was this boasting, this self-ownership thing taking place. And then he moves from chapter 4 into chapter 5. And he says, you know... I just got to bring this up with you guys. There is sin in your midst that I don't even find in the world. Remember the, the man who had his father's wife and, you know, and, and you guys know about it and you've done nothing. And yet you're arrogant. You've got to be kidding me. You guys think you're great at something. The stench of your life in this category is pronounced. We're hearing about it all over the place. But yet you guys are one of the few churches in the New Testament that have to be corrected about pride. And yet you are the church that gets the most corrected in every other category. You read all the other New Testament issues. Ain't no church like the Corinthian church. 
But here's a group that could walk around saying, we have got it so together. I mean, we got a spiritual gift thing going on. We speak in tongues more than all you guys do. And uh, we, we are happening. Paul says, you stink so bad in other categories. You ever notice that that pride can be that way in your life? You can be so sure that your husband and your wife's not doing the right thing. And this person's wrong and the church is that. And those leaders aren't doing that right. And you're just criticizing everything while the stench from your own life gags everyone around you. See, what's missing, the reason why you don't notice that, because there is a humility deficiency. See, when you're not humble, you, you don't see yourself accurately. You should mistrust yourself incredibly. In the absence of humility, we do not assess ourselves correctly. Look at verse 29. He says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. See, for for John the Baptist, humility was a highway for joy. That's exactly what it is. Humility will release you. It will set you free. It will, it will bring you into highways that joy can travel down into your life. His, his buddies are freaking out because he's diminishing in the face of decreasing. This guy's rejoicing. Oh, the day of God's increase has come. The greatness of God being seen more clearly. And he's rejoicing in it. See what humility does in our life? It provides opportunities for us to have great joy. Too many of us, rather than joy, we're being controlled by fear, by jealousy. We walk out of a setting like this and get into the common areas of our life, and there's jealousy going on in our hearts. There's discontent. We're moping. We're not content with what we have. Why is that? Well, because I think I deserve better. If you're convinced that you deserve worse than what you've got, you could become very content with what you have, couldn't you? I mean, let's face it, the reason why we get discontent, we don't like what we have, is because we've compared ourselves with somebody else who may have more. And we don't like what we have. And, and who's to say that we deserve to have what somebody else has anyway? So we have a deserving element. We have that entitlement mentality where people, the government, everybody owes me. Right? You do recognize that, right? Watch the political debates. It's a huge entitlement mentality. Look, be careful living in New Orleans that you don't get a huge entitlement mentality. I don't know who decided that FEMA needs to solve every problem in human existence. Stuff happens. Flood walls break. Catastrophes come. I don't know where the government became the insurance policy. But man, you live in New Orleans and you're like, I'm going to kill somebody. I'm old. Somebody needs to come fix this thing. There's an entitlement here. It's in our bloodstream. People owe us something. Well, you know, that's going to, that'll kill your joy. It'll kill your joy. And listen, one of the reasons why this, this topic so affects me was because this was just a very real, real area in my life when I was in my 20s. Discovered it probably, looking back, I could see it throughout my life, but I discovered it when I was about 19 years old and just fought with it for the next seven, eight, nine years. Um, And just seeing 
how, how miserable a lack of humility makes your life. You know, living that diet of constant comparison with others and being jealous and having to deal with anger towards this person and anger towards your circumstances and then fear. Oh, my goodness, fear all over the place. Right? I mean, I, as the Lord began to show me some of these things, I could look back in my life and I could see myself sitting in a grammar school class, scared to death that, you know, I, happened to, I went to a small school, so it was easy to be great. You know, like small settings, so you can be great. So I'm in a small setting, and, you know, I'm getting the best grades, and I'm, I'm sort of the president of the class, living every day in fear that somebody's going to show up better than me. New student comes halfway through the year, you're sizing them up. You're all wondering. Do you think, I wonder if he can beat me up. That'd be really embarrassing. You know, because, you know, like the, the bullies, you, know, you kind of find out, you know, who can you beat up. That's how you establish your name. I didn't have to beat anybody up. Somehow I just got a reputation that I could beat you up. And that was good enough. But the day that I could get discovered that I don't know if I could beat anybody up. I've never hardly had to fight anybody. Somebody's going to come and beat me up and, and my reign is over. So you live in this fear. I'm in grammar school living in this fear. Every day you go to school wondering who's going to undo my greatness, my ability to increase. You know, you grow up, you, know, you get saved. I got saved in high school, went off to college. Uh, college was the first setting where I got around a lot of Christians. All of a sudden, there is an opportunity for comparison everywhere. <laughs> you know, I'm involved in campus ministry, and I'm comparing my spirituality with this person's, my ability to quote this and say this. And, you know, I've shared this before. You know, we have meetings, and, you know, I'm, I'm praying the most mystical mother of all prayers that's ever been heard. You know, just, I mean, I'm, I'm out in the edges of the universe gathering information while everybody else is praying. You know, I don't hear anything they're praying. I'm preparing the most incredible prayer that has ever been heard. And it starts mysteriously, so people kind of wonder, what is that? <laughs> Where is this going? And somehow it just ends up on the right place. Oh, wow, that was so profound. I don't know if any of them are thinking that way, but that's what I'm thinking that they're thinking. As I'm gathering my resources to be very impressive and quoting this and being seen a certain way. Uh, listen, that stuff it was miserable. There's no joy in that. It's no lightness. You can't celebrate anybody else. Anybody else accomplishing anything, you just constantly feel you're in the shadow of it, comparing yourself to it. Right, these, were, these were some miserable, miserable days. And then the Lord decides, you know, early in that process, he decides, right about that time, decides, Keith, I'd like to introduce you to your own pride. And it was almost like uh, one of those scenes from, I don't know, you know, the ghost from Christmas past or something. Kind of taking me around throughout my day and showing me pride everywhere. Everywhere. It's like, I, I remember I sat in a parking lot on Veterans Highway and cried and cried. Because all I could see was my pride. It's like I couldn't escape it. It's like the Lord decided, said, you know what? This has been going on long enough. Let's just show it to you everywhere. It was like a 3D movie in panorama. Everywhere I turned, my response was pride. The reason you did that was so that people would see you a certain way. The reason you sounded that way was so that people would be impressed with you a certain way. And maneuvering conversations, just how good I'd become at being able to insert my own name. You didn't realize I inserted my own name. We were having a conversation about greatness, and I kind of got in there all of a sudden. And you mentioned that you knew somebody. I mentioned that I knew him, too. Uh, 
you talked about some event that took place? Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I, did. And years, I, mean, I remember years ago when I was I had an opportunity, blah, blah, blah. And you just learn how to dress it up and use words like serve and opportunity. And, and next thing you know, it's all about, did you notice how great I was? I know you were talking about greatness about that, but did you notice how great I was when you were talking about that? And I just learned, and God shows me. It's like the light is shining, and there's Keith sticking his head in the photograph. And I just could see it everywhere in my life. I, just, I couldn't run from myself. It's like carrying stink, you know? Everywhere I turned was my pride. And it was just the most miserable thing. Andrew Murray's book was life-changing for me. And so liberating. I, I, I wish somehow I could take those 10 or 15 years or however long it was of God dealing with me, put it in a capsule and just say, here, everybody have one. Just have one. Because getting free from those things, I, I, I cannot explain to you the joy of being free from other people's successes, or other people's differences, or other people's notoriety. You're not living in the fear of somebody's going to displace you, and you're not going to be seen as, an, as important. It's a wonderful, liberating thing that I can't recommend enough for all. Let me do this. I'm going to run out of time here. Here's a thought from Andrew Murray. And this is going to sound, this thought is one that you just need to chew on. Right? I'll recommend two resources for you in these categories. One would be Andrew Murray's book on humility. The second would be C.J. Mahaney's book on humility. They accomplish two very different things. Andrew Murray would be much more, and he's, that the book is about 100 years old now, and it would be much more about the sort of the theology of humility in Scripture. C.J.'s book would be much more about practically how to cultivate humility in your own life. Companions. They should be volume one and volume two, uh, but I highly recommend them. But listen to this thought. This thought, in its essence, is Andrew Murray on humility. He says, Humility is not a something which we bring to God or He bestows, it is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be. All. When the creature realizes that this is the true nobility and consents to be with his will, his mind, and his affections, the form, the vessel in which the life and glory of God are to work and manifest themselves, he sees that humility is simply acknowledging the truth of his position as creature and yielding to God his place. Now, now listen, that, that needs to make a whole lot of sense to us. There's something very simple about, you know, me creature, you creator. That keeps me from trying to traffic in categories of greatness that I don't belong in. He must increase. Greatness belongs to him. It's about him. It's for him. Misery, misery belongs to us when we try to be great in ways that only God should be great. Now, go ahead and, and come up. Now, listen, I, I realize that um, for each of us, this is touching different areas of our life. And, and, and I hope the Lord has kind of found you in that. Whether your issues are you know, men issues of comparing, accomplishment, wealth, 
job accolades, leadership potential and influence in the society or in the church. The wives, you, you are not exempt from issues of a lack of humility, just bringing down your life in categories. I have a great concern just because we live through these years ourselves and seen a lack of humility in them for ourselves and discovered it as we've walked with the church. Um, you know, young moms, young mothers, oh, if I, could, if I could rescue you from the misery of comparison. You know, I don't, I mean, it get, and it gets weird for you guys. I, mean, I got to tell you, I'm, my wife's not as young anymore as she used to be, but she was a young mom and I was married to her. So I had front row seats for some of these things. But you guys are weird. I don't know how else to say it. You know, when, when huge issues become whether, whether the baby is nursed or bottle fed, there's comparison on that. And then that moves from that major issue to whether your child's eating organic food or not. Or whether there's too much sugar in their diet. Oh, we gave up sugar. We just gave up sugar completely. And it's like there's this self-validating greatness in that. Like, you know, whether this kid's loading up on candy bars or not. And there's comparison. You know, and we find ways to kind of promote that to each other. You know, you know we don't watch Barney in our house. Like, wow, that's a category of greatness right there. Yeah. No Barney in your house. And then that gets one up by the other person turns around and says, we threw our TV out in the street. <laughs> Backed over it twice. Yeah, that's us. Uh, all, all those things, they come out of us because we want to win in the comparison race. They come out of us because we lack an awareness. What do you have that you did not receive. And if you did receive it, why do you boast? And so you didn't. Why do you act as though something of greatness originates in you? The second you do that, see, what you, what you can't escape, if you're proud that there's no Barney in your house, you can't escape the fact that I feel for you because you live under the microscope of your own comparisons. Not only do you find others falling short, but you have to face all the time the categories in which you're falling short. In categories where the Bible's just not clear. You know, I just don't find Barney. I don't find some of those issues so clear in the scriptures. If you feel clear about it, by all means, follow your convictions. But don't want to become a basis for pride. It will eat your lunch. You will be a most miserable person. And others around you will be most miserable. But here's a man stand in the shadow of John the Baptist. Here's a man, John the Baptist is decreasing. And he ends this passage by like his, his emphatic ambition. I must decrease. That word must is interesting in the Greek. It is, it is both the, the action of assertiveness, but it is also used in, in simply what is right. It's simply right. I must decrease. He is emphatically wanting to decrease, and it's just simply the right thing. He must increase. And now I'll close by just telling us this, as Andrew Murray says here. If you want to see humility in a greater way in your life, it will not happen by accident. 
Humility will not grow without a huge amount of intentionality. Pride is too active in us to ever let humility grow without being nurtured and cared for. So I close with Andrew Murray's thoughts. This humility is not a thing that will come of itself, but that it must be made the object of special desire and prayer and faith and practice. Let's stand up together. Lord, I pray that you are right now in our hearts diagnosing our ailments. Noticing, Lord, where there has been fear of man and fear of failure, frustration, irritability, and anger, conflict with others. Lord, how those things are growing out of are being deficient in humility. Oh Lord, what's great value in all categories of our lives. Humility brings. God, we want the, the platform of worship that John the Baptist had, that his attention for greatness was about your greatness. It was not about his own. Yet you were the one who said he was the greatest man who ever lived. But Lord, I thank you that he was not concerned for his own greatness even though he was truly the greatest man. His obsession was with your greatness. Oh, Lord, make us that way. Or keep us from the idolatry of trafficking in the category of greatness. Or may we firmly place you and you alone in that category. You alone are truly great. May we never attempt stick our heads in the picture with you and somehow be seen as great ourselves. Now, Lord, if you end up making us great, whether for a season or in some activity or area of our lives, Lord, guard us from that. May we hear the warning, beware lest you think your own hand has done this. For, Lord, we want to stand in the day of our decline with as much joy as John the Baptist had here. The day in which we don't compare well to others. The day in which somebody comes along and replaces us. The day in which our name becomes insignificant. We want to stand with joy. Be able to say, you know, it only matters whether God's greatness is being seen, not mine. And if it's seen in another, I rejoice. The day of the bridegroom has come. My joy is full. Lord, these are wonderful truths. Would you bear them in our hearts? Would you help us as we walk together as a body and as friends and as family, Lord, to cultivate in our hearts humility with all that it brings to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.